I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Lualawi Marishata Damasu. Luwalui, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Danny. Oh, thanks for coming. Uh, now, you're an atmospheric scientist, right? What is that? Well, it's it's the study of all the things that uh, go on in the atmosphere. In But like that includes, for instance, like the wind, uh, weather systems such as cyclones, anti-cyclones, uh, extreme events, and it's... It's a, a broad science that uh, has to do with not only uh, understanding the atmosphere, but also trying to apply it so that like in certain ways that it could be useful uh, to know and um, to apply in, uh, in our lives. For instance, you can think of, for instance, uh, weather prediction, and that's part of uh, uh, atmospheric science where you can use that knowledge or that understanding of the atmosphere for our day-to-day life to make life easier for everybody. So I guess that could, yeah, summarize what atmospheric science is just in general. (laughs) Wonderful. And what is it to you? Uh, What part of it do you do? Uh, So for me, I I study uh, atmospheric dynamics and uh, extreme events. So atmospheric dynamics has to do with... um, the the system uh, in which the weather the climate is actually being uh, adjusted uh, and changing uh, so there are two aspects of the cl- the climate or the atmosphere that interests us there is the thermodynamic aspect uh, that has to do with for instance uh, heat waves and uh, temperature and precipitation in certain areas but also like a more uh, in a broader context, for instance, if you think of circulation, uh, where air, how air moves, for instance, just to make it as simple as possible to explain how air moves from one place to the other, uh, how moisture and other things transport with air. Um, and that's the atmospheric dynamics that we try to understand. And as I told you, as we try to understand more and more about these dynamics, we we also try to use that understanding to understand Uh, or to predict at least extreme events uh, better in our uh, models and weather and climate models, for instance. I'm always so in awe of you atmospheric scientists. Like you said, you study air, and air is so unintuitive as a concept that we really have to work with children to get them to understand that it's actually there. Uh, And then we grow up and we learn that the atmosphere is not static. It's constantly moving and changing. Um, It's just really tough to wrap one's mind around. Yeah, indeed. And actually, uh, one of the things that fascinates me is in uh, atmospheric science is how you can use uh, something as philosophical as mathematics to try and understand how as you say the atmosphere is changing every day and it's dynamic it's changing 
uh, the air moves as I, as you say like from one place to another and there's no there's nothing you see what what forces that air going from one place to another but what we what we do in atmospheric science is we use these uh, very complicated mathematical equations to try and represent uh, the different forcers or drivers of these dynamics that uh, that that you find so fascinating and just to experience but also when you boil it down to these mathematical equations it's kind of fascinating how everything can just be represented by these simple uh, models that we we try to use and yeah it's it's a very fascinating science to be honest and i suppose those models and mathematics are extra important um unlike some other fields of, of study uh, you can't actually go to certain parts of the atmosphere um, or like capture them and, and study them uh, in a laboratory. You have to simulate them uh, and study the data. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's it's kind of interesting because when you think about it, the the Earth is so big and it's it's gigantic, and the atmosphere covers the entire Earth. So there is no way you can just. Uh, use observations everywhere because it's just uh, unfeasible and it's almost impossible to do that to all the places. Therefore, you have to be able to come up with or at least to discover the the laws that govern these, these movements so that you will be able to predict them without having to uh, measure every little thing that happens over the entire globe. That's what makes this modeling aspect of it so fascinating. Wonderful. Now, I'd like to focus on you for a moment. Um, what stage of your career, uh, career are you at? Uh, actually, you'd be interested to know, I'm only a first-year PhD student uh, in atmospheric sciences. Uh, I, uh, I started in September 2021, uh, so it's been uh, about eight months or nine months uh, right now. And yeah, it's been quite fascinating so far. Uh, what did you do your undergrad and master's in and where? Yeah, so I'm originally from Ethiopia. So I did my undergrad in civil engineering uh, when I was when I was in Ethiopia. It was it was interesting. Uh, as growing up, it was one of like the few fields that you find uh, is kind of interesting in general uh, when you think about especially I, growing up, I was I really liked mathematics and physics uh, in high school and in elementary. So I was really drawn towards like engineering kind of uh, studies. So I studied engineering, civil engineering. But while I was studying civil engineering, I was actually uh, starting to get this interest towards environmental science because we used to take like courses that are related to the environment. And uh, and the more and more I start to understand that, I felt like it it's one of the most impactful, uh, uh, impactful fields in the world. So what I did was uh, I tried to apply for a master's so that I can transition towards uh, anything that's related to environment and the atmosphere. So, uh, so what I what I did was I I did my master's in water resources engineering. So it's it's still engineering. So I can I could I could manage to. Uh, integrate myself in and be able to do all the tasks that I have to do but also at the same time it was introducing me to uh, the science aspect not the engineering aspect of the water resources uh, and 
actually one of the main reasons why I went to atmospheric science and uh, climate change uh, things is because I uh, we studied things to do with, for instance, what affects water stress in our world today or in the future. And it's one of the sectors in which climate change plays a significant role. So the more uh, that was like a very good transition for me to go from civil engineering and then slowly uh, get a grasp of uh, climate and then slowly just transition into, as I told you, finally atmospheric science. And uh, yeah, joined the PhD here. Well, you certainly came to the right place to learn about water management and (laughs) precipitation. Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's a very, yeah, it rains a lot in Vancouver. I'm not sure what the weather will be like when this comes out, but uh, you got drenched uh, coming into the museum today for your (laughs) interview. (laughs) Indeed. Doing a bit of field work, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Do you find that your engineering background is useful in the work that you're doing right now? So it has its pros and cons. Uh, the fact that I transitioned and uh, completely turned my career and uh, moved from engineering to science does have its own uh, challenges for me because I have to catch up with all the uh, background knowledge that I have to learn to be able uh, to become a climate scientist and to understand uh, the things I missed because I couldn't or I didn't take uh, an undergrad in atmospheric science. But at the same time, it also gives you uh, a different perspective. And for instance, in engineering, you design things, you design structures, and you and everything's precise and known. Uh, while when you come to uh, atmospheric science, climate science in general, most of the things are uh, expressed in uncertainty bands, and it's a more uh, a broader let's say, uh, tolerance for errors. And it kind of gives you a different perspective as to how to deal with those, uh, for instance, like I told you, like uh, bigger tolerance for error. And uh, it's a completely different perspective. And you're going to try to, coming from an engineering background, you're going to try to make things precise and accurate. And that gives you actually a very uh, positive outlook into when you come across problems uh, when you're trying to um, do your experiments or uh, analyze your data and etc., so I think it's it's been quite useful in my uh, in my research today that I did that uh, different perspective or a different background. It's really beneficial, but also an extra challenge to have diversity of. Uh academic backgrounds. Um, I've heard that the engineering brain and the scientific brain are very different, but it also means that you can approach certain issues that scientists would struggle with forever. um, And using your engineering brain, you can uh, solve it like that. It's low-hanging fruit for you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would hold up on the like that, but it's, it's, it is very helpful. It's quite helpful in trying to yeah, like approach a problem from a, dip, a different perspective. And uh, and it's always, and climate science is actually it's an in progress. It's still developing and it's, we're still trying to figure out uh, a lot of things in the, uh, in the, in the earth, to be honest. And uh, it's, it's just a very good addition to the efforts to be able to, uh, like, like, like you said, yeah, to look at problems in a different way and try to add to the effort. Uh, and then, of course, it comes with the extra challenges of having to learn 
um, the language that science uses and the the uh, procedures um, at a very advanced level too. It's not like you're being eased into it uh, in a PhD. Yeah, actually, you'd be interested to know the first month that I uh, I did I did my PhD, I had to. Uh, or I volunteered to, of course, but uh, to present at a seminar on some uh, uh, climate data analysis we did uh, with my professor, and I was I was very scared, <laughs> I was very nervous because I was speaking in front of all these scientists. But the fact that like I was bold enough to to you know to do that, it really helped me because uh, it gave me some confidence as to. Hey, I can learn this, and I can try to uh, catch up with what I missed. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it it is challenging to. It's not like uh, walk on, you know, like. But it is. Uh, it is also interesting. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting challenge. Let's say. <laughs> changing fields, changing countries. Um, that must have been quite the uh, the leap. Do you find that? Um, learning in Ethiopia is different from learning in Canada? Um, yeah, of course. And and yeah, I forgot to mention, I, I did my master's in, in Belgium too. So uh, it's kind of like I had a little experience of like Western education. Uh, we also have like the same kind of education, but it's different. I mean, uh, for instance, there is this uh, level of I mean, we also have respect here, but like, for instance, your relationship with your professors, it's much uh, easier, like easy to talk to and like like a colleague. Uh, while when I was back home, we had this uh, reverence almost to the towards the professors and we're very, uh, yeah, we're very reserved about like how we approach them and stuff. So uh, yeah, it was a very interesting uh, transition, but it was very easy because it's quite, uh, relaxed and the professors are are very supportive i have met a few professors in my very short term here and i can say all of them have been uh very easy to talk to and you could you could really get that uh support you need to to catch up and yeah be, um, thrive excellent i'm glad you're having a good experience yeah it's been quite interesting yeah it's been it's been fun to be honest <laughs> Now, I'm curious, uh, your career is still very young, um, but I'm sure you've made some discoveries. Have you discovered anything either that's new to the world or was just interesting to you when you learned it? I mean, there are a lot of things uh, that may or may not be new to the world that you discover while you're studying, uh, yeah, any science. But uh, I guess I would say what I find quite interesting is especially when when working with uh, like i told you climate models a lot uh is that climate science is not always uh as one may think just doing uh field work and doing uh experiments and stuff but uh like writing thousands of lines of code for instance uh you'd be interested to know some of the climate models contain hundreds of thousands of lines of code in their programs and I, uh, for me, the most fascinating aspect of the science was to learn this technical skill on the side that was, uh, that is so powerful, but also at the same time, so human and so easy to, uh, to learn. And, 
I would say my my most, I guess, like interesting experience experience in any part of the science I've been doing since I graduated from my undergrad is to be able to learn the importance and the strengths of technology today uh, and uh, computers, memory, uh, machine learning, and advanced uh, computer science that that is so useful in the in the natural science in climate science uh, today and yeah i find it so fascinating and yeah i mean as you said i'm still a very young uh, scientist and uh, i i sure hope to see of course new things in the future and especially as you said discover actually uh, something new to the world but i would say so far i, I haven't really discovered a new uh, finding but yeah no worries no worries <laughs> but it sounds like you're at the center of many venn diagrams you're an engineer a scientist and a computer programmer um <laughs> you see the world through many different lenses <laughs> yeah uh yeah i took up uh, like some programming i mean to be honest if you show the code i write to an actual computer scientist they might laugh at it because uh, we mostly focus on data analysis and um, parsing data and being able to get correlations and predictions uh, while of course the broader computer science it has a lot of um, algorithm understanding and uh, but at the same time at if you go to our department, I'm pretty sure like more than 80% of the students and staff are um, capable or at least to some extent uh, work with uh, programming and coding. And yeah, and you will find a few people that are quite <laughs> intrigued about uh, this aspect of the research. I'm definitely part of the 20% that's not <laughs> adept at coding or anything. I uh, <laughs> would struggle with DOS. Yeah. DOS is a code, right? Uh, it's a, I think it's an operating system. Okay, yeah, yeah, see, I that's mean, how much I know. All of it is <laughs> It's the magic yeah. box to me. Um, <laughs> what are you do doing all this coding for? What What's your research uh, looking at? Um, so... Uh, there is this aspect in climate change that we've been quite in intrigued about in the past uh, decade or so, and it's called Arctic amplification. It's it's to do with the fact that the Arctic region is warming much faster on the surface uh, when compared to the other parts of the globe. And there have been some... Uh, it's mostly to do with the sea ice lows, that, ha that happens in the area. There are a lot of mechanisms that go into there, including albedo change and other things. But the thing is, or the interesting thing is, the fact that this change also has some implications for weather systems in in the mid-latitudes. Those are like in, in the US, in Canada, in the Europe area, in Asia. And, uh, and that is the part that I, I'll be investigating in my uh, research. Uh, for that, I'll be working with uh, climate models uh, for the most part. So mainly you, you, when you run climate models, you might work with some code uh, or you might, um, for instance, edit some things in the main source code of the climate models to be able to do or to, 
let's say, to specialize the or to customize the model for your own so that you can run your own specific and tailored experiments. At the same time, you also get outputs. And most of the outputs are actually just raw data. And actually, majority of the work we do after that is analyzing uh, that data. And that's where most of the coding comes in and being able to parse that data and uh, present it in a way so that you can actually interpret the results and get an actual implication or understanding uh, that you're looking for when you set out the experiments. So that's mainly where the majority of the coding and the programming comes in. Excellent. And um, why should we be concerned if the Arctic's warming faster than everything else? Yeah, so so the interesting thing is the fact that the Arctic is warming faster faster than the uh, the other parts of the world. It creates uh, a different, let's say, temperature gradient between the Arctic and the tropics. So the tropics is the area around the equator. So in the in that equatorial region, normally it's warmer than the the the, the poles, of course, because the poles are very cold, and mainly that is what drives the winds that we see today, uh, especially the ones that run uh, at a higher level in the in the atmosphere. Now, the fact that the Arctic is warming faster than the other parts of the globe, it means that that temperature difference between the equator and the poles is changing. And that change has some implications on how those waves, uh, how those waves or sorry, how those winds go. And uh, that includes the speed of the wind uh, and the, the location where the maximum uh, speed of uh, wind happens. And the fact that that could possibly change has a lot of implication for weather systems and how they form, where they form, how long they stay in, in certain area. For instance, uh, last summer, we had a very gigantic heat wave here in British Columbia, and that was a result of uh, a high pressure blocking that occurred in the region that stayed there for a long time, creating this dome of heat that kept uh, punching down on the region. And the how these, uh, these blocking or similar weather systems um, happen and how long their duration, their intensity could be affected by uh, these changes in the dynamics of uh, the mid-latitudes. So the idea is that if unless we're able to understand how the Arctic affects the mid-latitude region and the weather systems, and then we're not really correctly identifying how extreme weather would change in the future. And since we know Arctic amplification is going to get worse in uh, with with global warming, we have to be able to understand this connection to the uh, to the weather systems, so uh, so that we'll be able to yeah, predict how how those also evolve with climate change. That heat dome was terrible, and you've now got me thinking about moving to Nunavut. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interestingly, I have not been here when that happens. I was very lucky. <laughs> Now, you mentioned that you do all this uh, coding, um, and, and it's really hard to visit. 
some of the places that you're actually studying because, I mean, it's kilometers up in the atmosphere. Um, so I guess you don't do a lot of field work, do you? Not really. Yeah, not really. And uh, yeah, like like I mentioned, uh, I assumed even before I knew about like uh, environmental sciences or anything like that, growing up, you'd think anything that has to do with earth science is more or less exploration and fieldwork and measurement. But there is this aspect or there is this different side of climate science that more or less mostly takes place on the computer, but at the same time is quite useful in being able to understand uh, how the climate will evolve in the future and what what we do and, and the effect of, for instance, what we do in the future. For instance, if you see most of the scenarios that are developed for future climate change, those are purely based on models and uh, other than like observations, right? Me measurements, because you can only measure and observe what already happened. You can't observe what's going to happen in the future. So this part of the science basically tries to capture the, the mechanism and the systems themselves and then try uh, or attempt to predict how the future would evolve given that we are doing what we are doing today to affect uh, the climate. So it's quite fascinating and uh, it's true that, of course, the the exploration aspect of it is quite beautiful, of course, and in the future, uh, I myself might be involved in that. But also there is this part of climate science that works with computers and models. And still, uh, if you, you could even say as useful as the other parts of uh, the climate science. It's great to know. Um, I hate camping. So it's good to know <laughs> that there's space for someone like me in climate science where you don't have to go out into the field. Uh, now, you're clearly very uh, excited about the work that you're doing, um, and you make it sound important and interesting. Um, but what's the best part about, about it? I would say the best part about research is uh, probably when any time you, uh, you get any good result, uh, good as in something new, discovering something new, it might not be some, uh, what you set out to do, but that moment when it was, it is actually successful because a lot of things take a lot of tries, right? It doesn't happen the first time, most of the time. Even your coding that we've been talking about, you have to do a lot of work <laughs> until your code works, or even uh, even when your code works, but is giving you maybe the wrong answer that you're not looking for, or is wrong completely. So when you find that first correct or uh, uh, useful result it's actually quite rewarding and uh, it's it's the best feeling ever to be honest uh, in research and I mean research is a lot of work right like you have to read a lot of articles re research the background uh, research the methods and be able to apply them yourself uh, so the result part is where basically you reap what you what you have sown so far and it's uh, honestly, my favorite feeling ever. Okay, now you sound like a masochist. You have to slog through code, breaking down, breaking down, breaking down, and then every now and then it works, and that's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but any anything that is worth 
uh, celebrating, it takes a lot of work. It it's, it can't just come to you out of out of nowhere. And if it did, you wouldn't enjoy it as much, to be honest. <laughs> so I think you've just answered this, but uh, what's the worst part about it or the most challenging part? Yeah. And, and yeah, the most challenging part is that, like I told you, that, that redo that you have to do like a few times on certain things because... <clears throat> As a human, you're going to make errors like all the time. It happens and you can't avoid it. And there's no perfect programmer or perfect researcher. There's always going to be errors. And there are times where it can be frustrating where you're trying to, for instance, to debug a code or or maybe you're trying to figure out a certain even scientific uh, thing, but you're kind of stuck. Uh, even sometimes lack of data can be quite frustrating. You might not find the data you need to be able to do your, the experiment that you're planning to do. And there are times that that can be frustrating in research. It's not, it's not just uh, easy all the time and rewards all the time, as you said. Uh, but at least to me, it's, it's quite worth it when you get that little... Uh, yeah, reward. Okay, so I take it back. You're Sherlock Holmes. You uh, like solving the tough crimes. <laughs> Indeed. Now, I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your studies? Uh, I mean, I am Black. I'm from Africa, so uh, I am, uh, guess, part of uh, a smaller community. Uh, it does have an effect. I, I would be lying if I say it, it has no effect at all. Uh, it's not that. It's not that like other people might treat you differently or anything like that. It could. It may not be like that at all. But sometimes, <clears throat> creating a, a sense of belonging for yourself when you, especially when moving around and going to a different country to study, uh, let alone being during COVID, you know. And it's so difficult to <laughs> to make friends already. And there are times where you might feel like you're out of place, uh, not belonging. And there are um, some challenging times. But the good thing is, at least so far, what I've seen here has been a very w- welcoming uh, community. So you could reach out to anyone and uh, make that connection that you need to be able to yeah, thrive in in a different location or where you are uh, underrepresented. And it's also a very, actually a very good motivation because it also gives you uh, the energy to to participate in other things other than just uh, working on your research and be able to be part of the community. And yeah, uh, it's it's quite a, it's quite an interesting endeavor. Yeah, Vancouver's known as being a bit of a socially um, chilly city. So, and then moving here in the pandemic too would have uh, magnified that tendency. Uh, but I also kind of feel like now that our grad students are getting back on campus, uh, they've missed out on two years of hanging out with each other, and so they're really putting an emphasis on uh, socializing and getting to know each other outside their work, which. Um, I don't know too much about what was going on before the pandemic, but I feel like that may have um, slipped by the wayside uh, when it wasn't deprived in the first place. So that may be a 
a side benefit <laughs> to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, slowly getting back to to campus is very helpful. You know, when you're it's Zoom is so inhuman. It's not <laughs> you're not communicating at all. So uh yeah being able to come to campus to go to the office and spend time with uh with the community it's it's part of what makes what makes you feel like you belong and yeah that's why covid was such a a tough thing and i i spent a year and a half of, of my masters during covid and then i came here during covid so it's it's not easy when you're stuck home on zoom but when you're back on campus, like these days after, you know, the vaccinations have been, you know, like uh, widespread and yeah, it's actually much better that, yeah, it is that way. I'm always curious, uh, as a Canadian uh, growing up, I always think of Canada as being not very um, well known on the international stage. And I always think if someone were to come to North America, uh, to an English-speaking country, uh, chances are they would go to the U.S. And I'm always kind of pleasantly surprised uh, that people even think about Canada as a destination. Why did you choose Vancouver? Yeah, I mean, uh, so in in my country, actually, like, yes, you are right that the U.S. <laughs> kind of dominates the, the media and uh, everything, but even the U.S. media actually kind of gives you some insights into what Canada might look like but like I don't know if you know this but like you guys are mocked quite a lot for being too nice on <laughs> the US <laughs> uh, TV and I don't mind uh, nice people to be honest uh, but yeah the main reason was actually looking for like a good university uh, uh, more than the destination at, at first so because yeah like that's one of the most important things is you know you have to be in a very good and supporting environment so i i wanted to be in a in a good university so that's the main reason why i was looking at ubc was that it's one of the best and uh, i don't know if you you probably know but like eos uh, our earth uh, science department is actually ranked i think number 11 or so on the world uh, chart so it's quite it's quite uh, appealing to to come here so the main reason is honestly the the scientific and the those things but at the same time there's i haven't heard anything negative about also you know canada and canadians that that would stop me from coming here so yeah it's uh, yeah well welcome i'm glad you came <laughs> and <laughs> i've you. definitely been um chastised for apologizing too much and then i apologize which is unintentional but it just comes out <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's okay it's for life it's nice yeah, it's okay. <laughs> now you mentioned that the department is really open and welcoming but um it's a really big department and very diverse uh with you know oceanographers uh, atmospheric scientists geologists all that kind of um all those different fields Atmospheric science in particular, or even just climate science, do you feel like it's really open and welcoming? Uh, or do you feel it's more uh, closed in and um, looks after their own? Um, I guess maybe in the past, it might have been like that, uh, to be honest. I mean, I have read a few a few things about like it being closed off 
even in general earth sciences or geosciences in general being closed off for minorities or women uh but i think today especially with the rise of you know social consciousness and things like that it's kind of opening up very well and uh um it's actually like uh it makes you feel hopeful about uh you know like getting more diversity getting more uh a more open and welcoming uh, uh situation uh also i guess it requires at the same time being able to advertise the science because it you it's not only that you're welcoming you also have to be appealing today to be able to get more uh like diverse uh, students or yeah from different background from different uh, places so yeah the fact that it has been in the past closed off might uh, require that we do more to advertise it and be able to uh, bring in more more students you know like uh, develop more diverse um diverse background uh, even faculty members so yeah it requires more more work to be because sometimes even when i say atmospheric science people are like what is that and then i have to say you know climate change <laughs> so and you have to explain you're not just going to yeah, become a, a weather guy on exactly, the news <laughs> yeah exactly so it's like uh it's also good that like i mean to a certain extent that climate change is so well known over the globe and uh it's actually actually it actually uh, creates this opportunity to to advertise your uh, uh yeah like atmospheric sciences for the, for the general public and uh, you know, make it an appealing field great and i i hope you're doing that right now because hopefully people who are listening are learning about the cool opportunities yeah we sure hope so <laughs> climate science <laughs> yeah now you mentioned that you moved here during the pandemic um Clearly, it overlapped with some of your master's work. Uh, how did it, Im- or did it impact your work at all, given that you do most of your work uh, remote- remotely already in a lab? Uh, during my master's, especially just when the, when COVID hit, it has been quite difficult, especially uh, having to stay at home all the time and still get the discipline for yourself to work, to get up in the morning, to work and uh, bring up some results, write up your paper, and then uh, at the same time, have no social contest- contact at all. Because during my master's too, uh, like since I was in Belgium, I was already away from family and everything. So the fact that it closed down, it has been even mentally challenging at times. Uh, but after that passed and things start to open up again, it started to get, you know, get back to normal slowly. Uh, coming here, actually, the the main thing that affected me was that I got COVID just before, <laughs> before my flight. <laughs> and uh, I was stuck for like a couple of weeks until I, I test negative. And then I was a bit late for... Uh, my classes beginning here and it was kind of a mess at the beginning and uh, you kind of want to be there for for when everything happens at the start because yeah you miss a lot of things <laughs> and uh, yeah it it can be tough especially like i i personally for me uh, working from home is not is not the most uh, pleasant thing 
especially when there's nobody there and you just get out of bed and just pull up a chair and just start working so yeah i think the fact that we're kind of over that now and starting to open up things is it's really helpful for uh, yeah everyone it's funny how we all used to talk about working from home as being the epitome of luxury uh, not having to come into work but turns out yeah, it's a for, nightmare. maybe for the first week it was luxury but <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah but not anymore Now, if anyone's listening and wants to follow in your footsteps, uh, what background or courses or experience would you recommend they pursue uh, to become an effective climate scientist? Um, yeah, I mean, depending on your background, right? Because I, my background is from an engineering background that for me, courses that are just basic atmospheric science are very important and very useful. But for someone, for instance, who already did their undergrad in atmospheric science, that might not be as uh, necessary. So, but other skills are very important. Like, uh, like I told you, for instance, uh, I did my first, I took my first uh, programming course during a summer after my undergrad finished or something. And then I was just, on edx and looking at some courses just to spend my time and then i find this interesting thing and then i just do it so the thing is sometimes uh when you're thinking about a career in a certain field there are all the other things that are not usually taught in class or may not be if you're lucky you may be taught in class but if you're not you may not and uh that you might have to like take the initiative sometimes to just go out and explore. So I would say in a general tone, like learning basic coding, it's it's very easy, especially these days with some of the high level uh, languages that are very human and uh, designed so that you can basically write in English <laughs> on the codes. So I would I would recommend like taking that kind of course when if you're thinking about like going into this kind of actually to in today's world if you're thinking of going into any research field it's not bad to have some coding background uh and with these days like machine learning and those things and also since they are interesting and they don't they don't feel like work when you when you do those courses it can be some activity you just do during your summer or something so <laughs> <laughs> Coding as an act of relaxation. Yeah, yeah, it can be. It depends on how you're thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, you've been really inspiring today. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, you've had a bit of a, a slog through your education with the uh, double whammy of COVID and, um, and moving across the world. Uh, have you found anyone who's really ins inspirational to you? Yes, in fact. Um, so, like the the one of the main reasons that I went into climate science was my advisor from my master's education. Um, his name is Wim Theory, and if you Google him, you will know why <laughs> he is such a big inspiration. He is uh, very young; he's thirty-four now. Uh, he he's already a, a tenor track professor at my uh, university uh, during at the time, and he is such a passionate researcher that 
it always inspired me. And when I was working on my thesis, we used to have these weekly meetings. And the fact that every time we meet at the weekly meetings that we talk about like this research, uh, like for instance, what, what I did over the week, right? And we'll talk about ideas that we might have and we just take a stab at it. And then every week I would always end up doing more than we talked about because I get so worked up about what we wanted to do. And it's just that his inspiration is that his passion for the science and research, it's really contagious and that it really gave me the sense of like that's that uh that joy of research that uh that feeling that i told you about where you get the result and you're like so happy and you keep going and uh yeah he's he's worked on uh different research uh to that have to do with extreme events and at the same time um some things to do with uh land and climate dynamics and uh he's uh, he's been also working with the IPCC. For those who don't know, it's the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, where a lot of uh, work from different scientists is gathered together and published for uh, policymakers and stuff. And uh, yeah, he's been a big inspiration for me. For in fact, to the point that I uh, I was really motivated to to chase a research career. But it sounds like you're contracting everything. First, you contract passion from your prof, and now uh, COVID. <laughs> I should also mention that this is the second stab at interviewing you. Uh, I was supposed to interview you last week, and then I got COVID. So <laughs> um, sorry about that. <laughs> and thanks for uh, sitting down with me today. <laughs> and it seems like you're uh, continuing on his legacy of inspiring people, because uh, you make it sound very interesting. <laughs> Now, as I mentioned, you are inspiring, um, but I'd like you to look to the long term. You're just at the beginning of your career. What would you like to have as your professional legacy when you retire? When I retire? That's a long time from today. <laughs> <laughs> or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone <laughs> when you finally put it to bed? I So as a kid, I've always been... Uh, thinking about like oh my you know having a huge impact and maybe even getting a nobel prize and i think but growing up i have i have realized realized that we are like every single one of us is one in a 7 billion population and if one person was to to impact positively that is uh just one more person that is more than enough in my opinion because if seven billion people help out one person that is everybody so i believe in small impacts and that i would like to live uh, uh, a life where even if it's as little as it might seem that i make any positive impact uh, that might be in my personal life but at the same time in my career because at the end of the day uh even if you focus on for instance climate science it's a it's a group effort uh at, at this day and age you don't hear of for instance a single scientist that discovers everything but more of a combination of efforts from different scientists that work on 
little pieces that add to the the combined effort so i would be very f- fulfilled even if my impact is very little but uh in the positive direction and just contributing to uh the betterment of uh the understanding of the science and yeah i would say that's fulfilling enough for me that's a very mature uh, response um it's a very canadian response i think <laughs> at least i hope <laughs> i think <laughs> i'm finally integrating i guess <laughs> by the way what is the nobel prize for um for climate I, science i honestly wouldn't know i or guess the, the or the, the ver- climate the science ca- version of a nobel prize <laughs> i really don't know what it is called because yeah like that was my uh I guess as a kid it was like that oh my god the, the nobel prize i mean i mean it's not that like you you could never get it but it's also not my uh, my biggest goal in life mm-hmm. and especially as you mentioned um in climate science it's all very collective work and so in a sense no one person can win it it's always a group of people winning it um together so it's not like there's a big push for for a person to win it because it's a push for a group of people to win it <laughs> yeah i mean if you uh, wake up tomorrow and discover a single cure for global warming and climate change i mean good for you that's amazing right like everybody would be grateful but uh but it's also just as useful because uh the the group effort it's trying to do the same thing right so being able to do that it's i believe it's a very uh, important thing so yeah that definitely goes back to what you're saying about the importance of having community uh not just a professional community but also uh personal as well now i'm going to get you to look to the future again um i find that Uh, the world is changing at breakneck speeds and individual scientific fields or professional fields can change as well um technology is revolutionizing how we understand the world and how we study it uh so the field that a person enters at the beginning of their degree or at the beginning of their career can be completely different by the time that they retire so what changes do you see coming to climate science um and what advice do you have for young people who are listening to this so that they can get ahead of some of those changes yeah <clears throat> that's a that's a very interesting question uh so there's still a lot to to work on a lot to study in climate science in the in the raw science too like we are we still don't understand a lot of things in the in the earth system in every part of it if you if you go to the ocean if you go to the atmosphere there is still a lot to work on in the science aspect to be able to understand uh the earth uh in a complete manner but at the same time if you're thinking of climate change uh only or the climate change aspect of it we already know uh what causes climate change we already know what we need to do about it and both in mitigation and adaptation aspects so the main question today at least uh now that we have started to see the impact of climate change is the social aspect of it so when you think of the social aspect of it uh it's it's interesting but at the same time shameful to see that the most vulnerable people and the poor the weak and uh, are also the same people who are most exposed to the impacts of climate change 
if you think of the gigantic uh, fossil corporations that were polluting the climate, uh, the atmosphere in the first place, not not one CEO is going to be affected by sea level rise tomorrow because they are rich enough to fend off the the impacts of climate change. However, the general public who has uh, who's just trying to live the, their day-to-day lives, the ones that are going to be uh, hit very hard and be affected. And this is actually corroborated by data where it has been shown that poor countries, poor communities, even in developed countries, are more affected by climate change uh, when, it come to, when it comes to the impacts. So as a for young uh, uh, students who would be interested in the future of climate change, I would say there is a lot of room in the science, but also there is a lot of uh, needed room in the social aspect of it and trying to figure out how we we go forward in a more uh, combined and uh, joined manner and where nobody is left behind, to be honest, and everybody is looking after everyone. And there is a responsible, but at the same time, a resilient society that that can come out of this climate change thing at the end better and stronger. So, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of interesting things to do in the future as well. That was the perfect answer to that question. You totally went back to the beginning of this interview uh, where you were talking about how you view your science through different lenses as a an engineer, as a computer programmer, as a scientist, and now as a humanitarian or, or human scientist. Um, you're adding more lenses to it, <laughs> which is sounds intimidating, but also sounds more exciting because um, that's the part that I like. <laughs> and you're practicing what you preach. You're actually helping the PME develop a virtual climate escape room, uh, which is really exciting. And you've been a great help with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been a very interesting endeavor to, to work on that as well. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a climate outreach thing, in case uh, your listeners want to know, uh, where we're trying to build this escape room uh, that is integrating climate change aspects and students can learn about climate change while playing a very simple and exciting game. Uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. And I also love that in your answer, you talked about how uh, it's the most vulnerable um, people, but uh, didn't... or touched on lightly how it's not only um, lower-income countries, but also lower-income people in our own communities who are going to experience climate change in the worst way. Um, So, I mean, Canada is a a fairly wealthy nation, and even within our country, within our borders, it's the low-income people who won't have air conditioning during the next heat wave um, or who won't be able to escape the heat in any way. Um, Yeah, and then also on a global sense, Wealthier countries can plan for some of these changes, but other countries just don't have the resources or there's just nothing they can do as, you know, some countries sink into the ocean um, and that's not their fault. They aren't the main emitters. It's uh, the wealthier countries like us. That is very true. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't put it any, any differently. (laughs) Well, well, Louis, thank you so much. Uh, you've been a treasure today. Um, is there anything I missed? Anything you want to add before I let you go? Um, not, not, nothing comes to mind. Thanks a lot, Daniel. That's been it's been a very uh, interesting conversation to have with you. It's yeah. Thanks a lot for inviting. Thank me. you. The honor's mine. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.